Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, John Lindsay Poland. John Lindsay Poland is a writer, an activist, a researcher, and analyst focused on human rights and demilitarization, especially in the Americas. From 1989 to 2014, he worked for the Fellowship of Reconciliation as coordinator of the Task Force on Latin America and the Caribbean, as a research director, and as founder of FOR's Columbia Peace Team. From 2003 to 14, he edited a monthly newsletter focused on Colombia and U.S. policy called Latin America Update. Previously, he served with Peace Brigades International in Guatemala and El Salvador and co-founded their Columbia Project in 1994. He now works for the American Friends Service Committee, and his work focuses mostly on stopping arms sales to Mexico, including a massive gun deal between Sig Sauer and the Mexican military, and on police demilitarization in California. You can check out afsc.org slash stoparms and johnlindsaypoland.com. John, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. It's great to be with you, David. Uh, thanks for coming on. Uh, guns going from the United States to the Mexican military and police and other entities. Uh, what's, the, what's the motivation here? Why, uh, why arm these people? Well, uh, you know, there's two flows of guns going from the United States to Mexico, at least two. There's the illegal flow, which is uh, coming from uh, legally purchased firearms in gun shops across the United States, especially in the border states of Texas and Arizona, that are very easily smuggled over the border uh, into Mexico, where there is an excellent market for them, um, and, and that then there's assault weapons and anything else that's been unbanned, right? That's right. Uh, so, in fact, when the federal ban on assault weapons ended in 2004, the uh, number of homicides in northern Mexican states shot up, and independently of uh, conflicts between drug cartels or between the state and drug cartels. Um, there was that that end of that assault ban created a lot more deaths uh, in northern Mexico, um, and that's continued since then. Um, the cartels want to control territory. They they're they're really kind of their paramilitary and military operations when they can control territory. They can not only move drugs, but they can extort, they can control all kinds of commerce in those areas. And when you want to control territory, you want military assets. So you want trained gunmen and you want equipment. And in that respect, the commercial gun market in the United States is perfect. You can go into a gun shop in Houston or Phoenix if you don't have a felony and you're 18 and you're a U.S. citizen, and you can buy five, ten AR-15s or AK-47s and walk out. And it's very easy to get those over the border from north to south because the infrastructure for controlling the border 
is much more focused on traffic coming from south to north. Yeah. The idea being that what comes from Mexico is dangerous, what comes from the United States must be okay. After all, we're the, we're the good guys, right? So, so the drug cartels have in common with ISIS wanting to control territory and using U.S.-made weaponry to do it. Exactly. And that weaponry is easily available. And it's, it's easily available in large part because of the gun laws and practices and culture within the United States. So then at the same time, you know, and that's, it, it's a good market because uh, for the sellers, because if you're in a legal industry, like the gun industry or like the human trafficking industry, if you have a dispute, you know, with another player in that industry or within your own organization, you're not going to go to court to resolve that dispute. You're going to, you're going to use other means, which typically involve violence. So it's, it's, a, it's a very good market for the sellers um, in that respect. So in that, in, in that sense, drug prohibition is feeding the, the, the demand for that flow of weapons. Right. Then, then at the same time, you have uh, it, you know, of course, a long history of U.S. attempts to control Mexico, stealing two-thirds of its territory in 1848 and so on. Um, the drug war, as it morphs, you know, people call a drug war like a, like a water balloon, right? So you squeeze the supply in one area, and because the demand for drugs is is not very elastic, we're not dealing. We're not. We don't have treatment programs in this country. We're not dealing with the demand um, of addicts for for those substances. Then the supply just moves around. You, if you're successful in Bolivia or in the Caribbean or in other areas uh, in controlling the supply, then there are other areas that will supply it because it's it's a it's a lucrative market. Um, and Mexico has traditionally been a transit territory for illicit drugs, but um, now it's also a producer country, uh, particularly of heroin and meth. And, meth. Um, and so, in uh, purportedly in response to that, you know, it's, it's a political. It, it's everyone knows it's ineffective in actually controlling or stopping the drugs, but there's a there's a political imperative um, in Washington to exert that control. And so that's where the, the Merida initiative comes in. Now, on the Mexican side, when Felipe Calderón ran for the president in 2006, and um, many people consider that presidential election to have been fraudulent, so it was contested. There were millions of people in the streets in Mexico City. And one of the first things he did after he was declared the winner was to ally himself with the Mexican military and say, we're going to fight and with Washington, you know, and with the, the Bush administration, and uh, saying we're going to fight, we're going to fight the drug cartels. But uh, as as many Mexican observers have noted, the the vehicle, the mechanism that he chose to fight the drug cartels was a totally rotten set of institutions, namely the military and the police, because the military and the police are also very much in bed with drug trafficking. So um, that was the rationale for arming the Mexican military and police. And as a result, um, the, the first big ticket items were helicopters, um, Black Hawk helicopters, Bell helicopters, um, produced in districts 
of senators and members of Congress who um, benefit from campaign contributions of those corporations, whether it's Textron or uh, Sikorsky, who produce those helicopters. Um, in the case of Bell Helicopters, uh, Kay Granger has been the chair of, this, of the House Appropriations Subcommittee that actually decides on the foreign appropriations that include the Black Hawk helicopters produced um, in her district. <laughs> so, um, you know, there's a, there's a kind of a whole corrupt process that leads to those sales. Yeah. Um, and then in addition, uh, so that, that was a, a, an aid program that started in 2007, peaked in 2009 and 10. Did, it, did it aid anybody? <laughs> well, it aided those institutions. It aided the Mexican military and the Navy and the uh, Mexican police. Right, right. I'm just not uh, sure we should call it aid. But it, the, the, uh-huh. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't rival over $100 billion worth of weapons in recent years to Saudi Arabia or some of these other countries, but it is in the billions of dollars, right, in, in recent years. U.S. weapons to Mexico, officially, uh, you know, supposedly legitimately above board, uh, weapons to Mexico. That's right. So between the inauguration of Enrique Peña Nieto in Mexico in late 2012 and the spring of 2015, there were $3.5 billion worth of um, military equipment and arms sales. Um, And... You know, we should note that even though it's it's not on the scale in dollars of Saudi Arabia, the homicide rate in Mexico and in Central America is much higher. I mean, obviously, what Saudi Arabia is doing in Yemen uh, is is catastrophic, but the use of the weapons on the ground—I mean, a firearm, relatively speaking—doesn't cost that much. Plus five hundred thousand dollars, two thousand dollars, but it can do an enormous amount of damage compared to um, aircraft that are being sold to Saudi Arabia as well as to Mexico. Um, they can also do enormous net damage, but you know I think sometimes the dollar amount doesn't reflect the human cost. So, for example, um, the amount of firearms that are legally have been legally exported from the United States into Mexico during the last five years, it's about $208 million worth. Yeah. Uh, Which, you know, compared to the many billions in other countries, it doesn't seem like a lot, but that's a lot of firearms. And one of the interesting things about that is that there's data about firearms exports that are published by the U.S. Census Bureau, and they show what U.S. port those firearms are leaving from. And of that $208 million worth in the last five years, more than half left through Laredo, Texas, the port of Laredo, Texas, which is huge, huge port, lots of containers going back and forth all day, 24 hours. But on the other side of Laredo is the state of Tamaulipas, which is controlled almost entirely by the Cetas cartel. So when you think about how these weapons are, uh, you know, where they're going, how they're being used, and uh, whether there's some kind of leakage between the Mexican armed forces and organized crime in Mexico, the opportunities are 
enormous in, in Tamaulipas for the setas to obtain that weaponry. Yeah. Because they control the state. And, and it's, uh, it's not speculation, right? I mean, you've written about this uh, in your articles that I've read, that these weapons uh, end up going to criminal gangs and companies and individuals and unaccounted for destinations and have been used by the Mexican military and police for torture, for murder. Uh, so this is, there's a moral question. There's also a, a legal question with laws like the Leahy Law that forbid the United States, I mean, in theory, this is not one of those laws that's ever enforced, but, but it's a law, uh, it forbid the United States to sell weaponry uh, to places that do such things with it. Is, isn't that right? Well, well two, two things first. Uh, it, um, the Leahy Law applies to assistance, not directly to sales. So if um, the United States is aiding, or again, I, I understand your questioning of no, no, that word. But, but there's an accompanying law that covers, that covers sales as well, uh, the arms exports. No, actually, the, it, it's, the, the guidelines for sales are much more vague. There should be. There should be uh, the, that kind of restriction on sales. The, the State Department has to license sales. Um, even commercial ones that are going, you know, are, are directly between the commercial producer, the private producer, and the foreign government. Isn't it the um, Arms but, Export Control Act that, that Secretary Clinton has to waive in order to sell weapons to Saudi Arabia? You know, there, there are sometimes country-specific conditions um, that apply to specific countries. I don't know about Saudi Arabia. Um, the... The but no, they have the State Department has to license, um, but they don't have to waive anything. Um, they can stop a, a sale if they think it's going to be diverted, um, but there's not a requirement to stop the sale unless it actually has been diverted. So um, you know, with the Leahy Law uh, for assistance, the requirement is only that the, a unit um, that there's credible information that members of a unit have committed a gross human rights abuse in the past. Um, but with sales, there, that restriction is unfortunately not in the law. It has been applied to assistance before uh, in Colombia and some other countries. Um, but it, it's, it's not, uh, it's a limited law. You know, it doesn't apply, for example, to the whole overall package so, uh, of a, for a country. So, um, and I suspect that there are some units in Mexico that um, have been excluded from some U.S. assistance because of the Leahy Law. But sales get around that because Mexico is paying. And uh, so um, there are a lot of different ways that that could have a direct impact on the ground, um, as you were suggesting. Sometimes it's because the unit that acquires those weapons, either through assistance or through sales, commits a direct abuse. So that could be um, they've gotten some training or they've gotten some equipment. They carry out an operation and they kill a bunch of civilians. Another way is through diversion of weapons. So there are thousands of weapons that have gone missing within the Mexican armed forces. Um, another way is just through collaboration with organized crime. So there's not an actual um, 
transfer of equipment between the armed forces and organized crime, or the the armed forces are not the they're they're not the trigger men, um, but they are protecting organized crime. They're collaborating with organized crime in various ways. They give them information. They they uh, tell them who, for example, someone reports a crime that's been committed by the cartels, and the police tell the cartels, "Oh yeah, this, this is the person. Here's here's the report that they filed," and then that person then becomes threatened. So there's many different ways that that assistance or those sales can strengthen those who are violating human rights, whether those who, whether they're they're being committed directly by state forces or they're being committed by members of organized crime that are in bed with armed forces and with the state as a whole. Because, yeah. you know, let's, let's be real. It's not just the armed forces in Mexico that are in bed with organized crime. It's, it's many different parts of the state, including many civilian parts of the state, and going all the way up the chain. John, Lindsay, Poland, you, you've been focused on a particular company in the United States that's uh, got a big contract to sell guns. To Mexico, can you talk about this company and it, and its its politics and its power? So you're referring to uh, Sig Sauer Inc., which is a gun producer that originally uh, started in Germany. Uh, they about two decades decades ago they they set up shop uh, with a production facility in New Hampshire, uh, actually on a former Air Force base and uh, have been exporting weapons to many different countries from the United States. And one of the reasons they did this is that the U.S. arms export controls and laws are much looser than they are in Germany. In fact, in Germany, Six Hour is uh, the subject of a lawsuit and, and a criminal investigation um, by German authorities for exports of weapons uh, to Colombia. Um, and probably to other countries as well, because the laws there prohibit, are, are, they're much stronger. So there's another German arms export company uh, called Heckler & Koch that exported weapons to Mexico and is also being criminally, uh, civilly and criminally prosecuted uh, in Germany for those experts, because a lot of them ended up being used by the police that committed the, the disappearance of the 43 students from Ayotzinapa in Guerrero. So Six Hour uh, in 2015, they've been exporting weapons to Mexico for a number of years, at least since 2010. And um, in 2015, they signed a commercial deal. It was licensed by the State Department uh, with the Mexican military for uh, $266 million, up to $266 million worth of firearms. Now, I should note here that the Mexican military is the central recipient for all firearms that are exported into Mexico. So the Mexican military distributes weapons to the local, state, and federal police and other state-armed entities in Mexico. They also... um, sell weapons in a very restricted manner to private entities, private security companies and individuals. It's not, it's very restricted. Personal possession of a firearm in Mexico is very restricted. 
it, there's some people for whom it's legal, but not very many, and it's hard, not easy to get them. There's only one store in all of Mexico, in Mexico City, where you can obtain them legally. So this deal uh, is presumably for distribution to all of those police forces. And we know that um, six-hour weapons have been distributed to many uh, different uh, state forces uh, within within Mexico, um, including uh, states where there's uh, documented collusion between the state police and organized crime, like Chihuahua and Tamaulipas and Morelos and Veracruz. Um, so that deal... Uh, is uh, not entirely been carried out. So it, it, it's good for a number of years. With the Mexican Navy, the license goes at least until 2024. And we know that in 2015 and 2016, no more than about $10 million worth of those weapons were actually exported to Mexico. Yeah. Now, at the same time, uh, the, the Six Hour uh, donated... Uh, $100,000 to a Trump campaign PAC uh, last year, in August of last year. And then at the time of the inauguration, Six Hour, in January of this year, Six Hour contracted with uh, an associate of Mike Pence, of Vice President Mike Pence, to lobby for, uh, on U.S. exports of firearms. You know, and there's a number of things that could be going on here. Uh, one of our fears is that the licensing of those exports, which are are currently still um, a, a security item, so there's a, a little bit more oversight. It has to happen by the State Department. There have been some cases where um, uh, sales were vetoed by the State Department, apparently. Um, but this could be moved over to oversight by the Commerce Department, which will have very different interests in mind when they review those licenses yeah i i imagine john that if you talk to americans as i'm sure you have about this that a great many people know that there is violence and corruption in mexico uh and that there is uh, a, a high death rate from firearms i'm i'm guessing a much smaller number of u.s residents have any idea that a german company came to the united states to set up shop uh in order to arm Mexico for that violence uh, with U.S.-made weapons uh, because the U.S. is is easy to do that in and you can legally bribe top U.S. officials uh, with with a bit of your cash. I mean, do, do people have any idea that this is going on? I, I think the awareness outside of the Mexican community in the United States is, is pretty low. And, you know, one reflection of that is that in the United States, there's there's a pretty broad movement for gun violence prevention. Um, you know, we have 10,000 gun homicides in this country every year, uh, 30,000 deaths approximately, and um, we have a, we have a gun pro- gun violence problem in this country. But even within that movement, that is. In, in almost every state uh, in, the, in the United States, there's very little awareness that U.S. sourced weapons, that is, U.S. produced or purchased weapons, are causing an approximate number of homicides or, or involved in an appro- approximately the same number of homicides in Mexico every year, about 10,000. 
uh, and have been for the last uh, seven, eight years. Uh, again, as uh, gun production in the United States has grown, the, the gun industry is looking more for export. The U.S. gun industry is trying to export more. So that could be to legal forces. There has even been a move to expand the law allowing possession of firearms in Mexico uh, that the NRA is supporting. And uh, so I think that even among people who have some awareness of gun violence in this country, and then also a lot of the violence in, in Mexico is framed around drugs, right? And it's not actually drugs that are the direct vehicle or, or mechanism in that violence. It's, it's firearms. And um, so that framing, uh, which is a, is a main, you know, the dominant kind of frame, um, but is also used by many progressives, I think also can mask the, the role of weapons and weapons, again, that are produced and sold in the United States in, in that suffering. And to be honest, there's also, um, there's, I think there's a lot of racism of, uh, or, or maybe it's just callousness or both in response to uh, the suffering of, of Mexicans. Uh, you know, either, and this happens inside Mexico too, where people say, "Oh well, that person was disappeared, that person was killed, they must have been involved in something." I mean, on this side of the border, I think it tends to be more. Well, that's that's part of Mexico's culture, right? It's just, that's just the way it is. That's not the way it is. This has grown uh, in the last ten years, um, both in terms of the percentage of homicides that involve firearms, and the number of homicides. This is not the norm in Mexico. Until the mid-2000s, the homicide rate in Mexico, as in many countries, was historically going down. Um, that ends with both the declaration of the drug war, that's a binational thing, and the loosening of uh, gun sale laws within the United States. And so we play a very important role in in the harms that many Mexicans are suffering, and I think we have to respond to that. We have to we have to address that. John, we've got a minute and a half left. Do we address it best and first by going after the U.S. government, by going after the the, the weapons dealers, by working for divestment, by working for conversion to peaceful industries? How do we how do we address it? Well, I think um, there it, it needs to be a a. A, a binational or multinational strategy. You know, we need to be working with people uh, in Mexico as well as in the United States. And in the case of this six-hour sale, I would say with activists in Germany, um, in order to first draw out more information and more awareness uh, about these uh, arms sales and their impacts in, in Mexico. And that means uh, getting stuff out in the on the air means... Um, getting information out, holding events in our communities, and then pressing uh, local and federal uh, policymakers to make statements. Um, because, you know, we know that in, in this environment, uh, the Trump government and the, the Republican Congress are not friendly to these goals. Um, but to keep it on the table and to do what we can do locally um, in order to both make more visible and, um, and, and to control things at a local level. So, for example, we imagine that in the next 
right. uh, month or so, there will be a, a congressional letter to state governments to enforce gun trafficking laws. Ten seconds. And so we can press for that. John Lindsay Poland, I hope we can. I hope to have you back and to learn more. We'll have lots of links up at talknationradio.org, afsc.org slash stoparms, or johnlindsaypoland.com to learn more. John, thanks for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you so much, David. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.